Heavenly Father, that is what gives us great confidence as we come before you, that you will indeed be sanctifying us. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You do have the power to deliver us from evil, from the evil one and all his efforts to thwart us, Lord, and to put us on the path towards righteousness. And we pray that you would begin, continue that work this morning in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark, so I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to that book. Mark, we're going to look at chapter 4, the first 20 verses. It's a familiar uh, parable, one that you've probably heard before at least once or twice. Mark chapter 4, we'll read verses 1 through 20, and I want to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the, sword, or where the word is sown, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is God's word. Please have a seat. Well, listen, because I have a secret to tell you. It's a secret that might best serve husbands and wives. It's a secret that reveals the key to a long-lasting and intimate, healthy marriage. Do you want to hear that? Well, listen. Did you hear it? That's the message. Listen. The message is, listen to one another. Learn how to listen well. It sounds so simple, but it yet seems so hard. Those of you who've been in marriage for a long time, you know it can be a challenge to listen. 
but you also know that when you listen well, things go well. And when you don't listen well, things don't go so well. I would say that many marriages end or get in trouble because they've lost the ability to listen to one another. And when I say listen well, it means don't just listen to the words that are being spoken, but listen for the meaning that perhaps is behind the words, because that takes work. Listening is work. Trying to understand what the person is communicating requires you to enter into their world, as it were. It requires you to take into consideration the context. It requires you to be discerning. It requires you to set aside your own pride, perhaps, and listen to what's being said. Now, that's true in a good marriage, but it's also true in a good friendship. And it's also true in terms of your relationship with the Lord. Walking with the Lord, you can measure by how well you listen to the Lord. How do you listen? If you notice, so often Jesus will tell us, like He does in this parable, the very first word He says is, listen. It's an imperative. It's the one imperative verb that He's giving. It is the one application that He's giving for this entire parable. It is, listen. And how often do you hear Him saying things like, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Why do you think He has to say that so much? (laughs) because we haven't learned to listen well. We are not good listeners. And as we jump into this parable, I want to look at it from that perspective as how does it reveal that to us, our our poor listening nature? How How does it help us understand that? Now, this is a very familiar parable. If you're a student of the Bible at all, it's one that we hear a lot. It's the one that all three of the synoptic gospels include, and not only the parable itself, but Jesus' explanation of the parable. We don't often have the explanation of the parables, but here we do. So because of that reason, it is a familiar parable. But I don't want to lose sight out of its familiarity, the great truths that it's actually teaching. So as we look at this parable, we're going to look at it from kind of three different perspectives. One, this parable is giving us a a present observation of what's going on in the ministry of Jesus. I know we don't often look at it like that, but that's what he's doing. He's setting expectations for ministry. But we also have, you know, the principal teaching that we find there, the principal lesson that we're perhaps the most familiar with, and that's understanding what exactly is going on. How do we, how do we explain or understand why it is that some seed does well and other seed does not do well? Why is it that sometimes the Word of God has an impact upon a person, and why does it not have an impact upon a person? So, in the first sense, it gives us expectation. In the other sense, it gives us a measure of understanding. And lastly, it leads us, as we we look further down, to see why is it that Jesus teaches in parables at all? Because He explains the purpose of parables here. It helps us to grasp some of the application that we are to take away as active listeners, as it were. So, that's what I want to do, look at this this, um, parable from those perspectives. And first of all, is looking at the present observation of what we see happening. That, for that is what Jesus is doing. He's essentially setting expectations. I mean, here's a, it's a simple parable, a parable about a sower, about seed, and about soil. And as he explains that, he says the sower sows the Word. So the seed is the Word of God. And he sows it among a very, various kinds of soils. And what are soils but people, or specifically the hearts of people? 
So that's, that's pretty clear. We're going to get to that more as we look at that in the, the principal lesson that's there. But I want you to think about that in terms of what's going on in the very ministry of Jesus, because He's presenting Himself ultimately as the sower. He's the sower, and He's sowing the Word of God. And as we look around, we have a group of disciples that's around Him, and then we have this great massive crowds about Him as well. Now, you can imagine if Jesus comes and announces Himself, introduces Himself, He calls to Himself specific disciples, and which He did in the last chapter, they're dedicated to following Jesus. He has introduced Himself as the Messiah, the one that has been promised for centuries that God would send to rescue His people. So there are already these great high expectations for Jesus being the Messiah. And if you're one of those disciples and you're watching what's happening, as all the people from all over the countryside turn up, and you'll recall He describes that in several places in chapter 3 and chapter 4, that the crowds were so great, they were so thick, that he was being threatened of being crushed, that he and his disciples couldn't, they didn't have a moment to eat. In fact, the setting of this particular parable, it says he, has, he asked his disciples to set up a boat for him that will be pushed away from the shore just to find some distance between he and the crowds so that he can actually breathe and talk to them. So there are these masses of people following this one who has revealed in some certain ways that the kingdom of God has come that He is this promised Messiah. And if you're one of those disciples, you're thinking, okay, there's a lot of great success I see happening. He's sowing the Word as it is, and the people are responding. It is bearing fruit. The whole world is coming out to see this Messiah. Things are going great. Who knows, next week He may you know, sit on the throne and eliminate the Romans and all the other problems that exist in the world. But as we are students of the gospel, we know that's not how the story goes exactly. In fact, it's not going to be very long when all these crowds start to disband and they leave Jesus. Even those disciples who were walking with Him for a time, they too turn and leave because things begin to get hard, right? The, the, the uh, religious leaders of the day are accusing Jesus of all kinds of bad things. We just saw last week they accused Him of, of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of the dung heap. Of, the, of being an agent of Satan himself. We see him saying some hard things that people have a hard time accepting. When he talks about the cost of discipleship, well, that's a cost that's very high. And those crowds that were once great around Jesus begin dwindling and going away. And so that hasn't happened yet, but you can imagine the expectation the disciples are having with watching these great crowds. So this parable, by giving this parable, Jesus is essentially explaining, look, I don't want you to be surprised at what you're about to see. Because while I am casting, I am sowing the seed, there's going to be a lot of seed that seems to bear no fruit and to do nothing and to seem to be fruitless and pointless. So don't be surprised at what you see. I can imagine later on, as they reflect back, that would have been some measure of comfort to understand that. And it gives us some expectation, too, of understanding how does the Word of God work. For as, as, as Jesus went up into heaven and launched His disciples, you know, filling them with the Holy Spirit, telling them to go out and make disciples of all nations, there is, there is the message of the gospel that is being pro, proclaimed and carried to all the world. So the sowers become many, you know. I am a sower this morning. You are a sower. 
as a child of God. You carry the message to go out and, and share that with those within your sphere of influence. And there is an expectation being set. As you sow that word, some will respond and some won't. And that shouldn't surprise you. Because that even happened with Jesus. Now, there's a great temptation as the sower. We want to become more effective in sharing the gospel. And we think about that. Our effectiveness in sharing the gospel is measured by how many people respond to it. And that would cause us to reflect upon, well, how is me, the sower, needs to change? Well, maybe I need to dress in more hip clothes or get the right glasses or be more charismatic or learn how to you know, win friends and influence people better. And maybe those things would be helpful, you know, just in terms of being a, a better person. But you'll notice in the parable, there's no, there's no variation in the sower. There's just a sower. No attention given to him whatsoever. He doesn't need to have some special designer's bag for the seeds, you know. He doesn't have to have any experience. In fact, it would seem that the sower really has no experience because he's scattering it everywhere. So there's a temptation, you know, as a preacher, as someone who wants to bear more, to bear more fruit, to think, I've got to work on myself. And when I don't see as much fruit as I hope to see, then perhaps the temptation is, well, I'm going to stop sharing altogether because this is hard. It's hard for me to share with people and frustrated to see they're, they're not responding, you know, to give up or to lose hope. Now, there's another temptation that, well, maybe, you know, this particular soil that I'm dealing with just doesn't work well with this particular seed, so I need to change the seed. Well, what is the seed? The seed is the Word of God. And there is a great temptation, and we've seen it throughout church history. Let's just change to a more palatable message for people in our culture to bear. You know, let's stop talking about the wrath of God. That turns people off. Let's stop talking about sin and you being a sinner, because that's, that's offensive. You know, let's stop talking about what the Bible says is actually right and wrong when it runs counter to what the culture says is right and wrong, because those things put people away, off. That doesn't grow in the present soil that we're dealing with. So there's a temptation to change yourself as the sower. There's a temptation to change the seed to a better seed that'll grow more in the, in the soil. But you'll notice the parable is not about, it's not about that. The word is the seed, period. You don't change that. The sower is the sower. Ultimately, it's, the, it's, it's Jesus himself who's speaking through his people. What is in view here is the soil. And that brings us to the second part. If we look at the principal lesson is understanding the soil. So we set expectations about what to expect when we as sowers carry the word and even what we see in the, in the ministry of Jesus. But secondly, what's the principal lesson we get out of this when, we, when it's talking solely about the soil? He talks about the soil. And what is the message? Some falls on the path and nothing happens. Satan comes and snatches it before it has any impact. The next one falls upon rocky soil, where it immediately springs up, seems to bear much fruit, but then when things get hard, it falls away. And we've seen both of these things, haven't we? You can, you can, you can talk to people until you're blue in the face, and it has absolutely no impact upon them. There's a hardness of heart there that will not be penetrated, no matter how carefully or thoughtfully or logically you may present the Word of God. And we've all seen as well in our experience in the church, people get super excited when they first hear the message. 
they embrace it, they come forward, you know, they make a profession of faith, they jump involved perhaps in the ministry of the church, but soon they find out that, you know, all those people in the church they thought were just great people, well, man, sometimes they're offensive (laughs) because guess what? They're sinners too. They're dealing with their own struggles. Feelings get hurt. They're excited about this ministry, and they come to me. I can't tell you how many times this happened to me. People come to me, they're passionate about wanting to do one particular thing within the church. They think, we ought to be helping this group of homeless, or we ought to be doing ministry over at this particular center. And they ask me if they can do that. I said, hey, if God has put that in your heart, go for it. But when the whole church doesn't get behind and come and do the same thing with them, they get frustrated. They leave. They go. They fall away. Things didn't fit their excitement level, and so they disappear. Or they get offended by somebody else in the congregation, or someone makes a decision they don't like or they don't agree with, and so they're gone. They fall away. The third one is the soils, right? The, 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 the thorny, among the thorns, weeds and the thorns. So this seems to be a real plant. It's growing up, right? But the thorns are there, the weeds are there, and they choke it, and it never gets to the point where it's actually bearing fruit. And Jesus explains that this is the worries and anxieties of life, that this is the, the uh, uh, deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things becomes these thorns, these weeds that choke out the grain, the seed from ever actually bearing fruit. And I would suggest to you that this is probably the predominant situation we have across the American church today. A lot of people who would profess with their mouth that Jesus is Christ, but we don't see or we see very little fruit in their lives, if any, because the worries and anxieties of this life have consumed them. Worried about whether or not they'll have enough money to, to uh, uh, put their family in the, situ- in the particular circumstances they want them to experience, to give them the things perhaps they say that they didn't experience when they were younger. And so they sacrifice their time and spend more time in the office or more energy in this place or that place in order to secure the thing they think, the thing that they believe their family needs the most. Or it's simply a desire for other things. We want a vacation home. We want a better, nicer car. We want this or that. Or they want things for their kids. Right? The world says that you need to have your kids engaged in this activity and that activity. Well, guess what? Those activities are dictated often in, in conflict with the times that we may be spent giving to the Word of itself, taking our time away from worship, taking our time being engaged in the life of the, the youth group or, or the discipleship ministry for the youth. And it's not that any of those things aren't good things. By the way, the desire for other things, he doesn't say the desire for evil things or bad things or sinful things. He's just saying the desire for other things, which could be very good things. The problem is when they become things that suddenly push out the fruit from growing that ought to exist, that's when they become troublesome. And we see that going on. This is an understanding of the soils themselves. And the difficult part is to, is to realize that the growth of the seed is dependent upon the soil. And the question is, well, who and what can actually impact the soil? If the soil is the heart, what is it that impacts and affects the heart? I mean, me as a preacher, 
I cannot change your heart. You as a person, believe it or not, cannot change your heart. I mean, the nature of the heart is described several places in the Old Testament. You know, if we go back to Genesis 6, he says, he says uh, uh, the heart, again. Well, no, that's the Jeremiah 79, the, Jer- the heart is deceitful above all things, who can understand it? Every inclination of man's heart is only evil all the time. That's right. Thank you. Genesis 6, 5. The nature of the heart is corrupt. You know, there, Paul describes the heart as there is no one who seeks after God, no, not one. You can't change your own heart. So therefore, the work of changing the heart is something that's reserved only for God Himself. And this is, where this, this is what the parable is helping us to see. Now, in the Gospel of John, which is not one of the synoptic Gospels, He doesn't necessarily give the parables. Instead, He often gives other ways of, of showing the same truths that is being, they're being taught in the parables. He talks about in John 6 that no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws Him. It's the same aspect. Only God can change and affect the heart of a person. And He does that in the lives of people. And you think, well, how does God work on the hearts of people? How does God prepare a heart that is hard and dead into one that is alive and ready to receive His Word? Well, the most familiar way that He does that is with trials and struggles and pain. People say, you know, why does God allow bad things to happen to people? Well, He's got to cultivate some hard hearts. If you're a farmer, have you ever cultivated soil? What do you have to do? Well, depends on the soil. If you're living in Houston and you're wanting to plant some seed and you're trying to do this in August, you probably need a pickaxe to break up the clay. <laughs> or if you're in other place, you may be, it's a hoe or it's a rake. The point is, it's, uh, it's not gentle on the soil. And if God is doing that on our hearts, it's not gentle on the heart. You know, James, what does James tell us in James chapter 1? Consider it a joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. For when you're facing those trials, it is producing faith and bringing a point of steadfastness. You know, Paul talks about the same thing in terms of the nature of trials and struggles. And as we consider the many people in the Old Testament who bore fruit, and you look at their lives as they're described, whether it's a Joseph you know, Joseph was the, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, renamed Israel, who was the favorite of his dad. His brothers were very jealous of that. And at one point, they plotted to kill him, but one of them talks him out of killing him. Instead, they sell him into slavery. Can you imagine if you had brothers and sisters who didn't like you so much that they were willing to sell you into slavery? And you spend time in slavery. You, you, you're a slave in, a, in one uh, man's house. His wife accuses you of something that you don't do, and he then throws you in prison. So you go from being a slave, having a fairly decent living, to now being set in prison. And you're in prison for years and years and years. But of course, we know what Joseph Joseph did. Joseph That put Joseph in a place where he was able to interpret some dreams of some of Pharaoh's advisors, who later... When Pharaoh's having troubled dreams that are from the Lord, they remember Joseph, and and he brings out Joseph. Joseph interprets the dreams, and he puts him in charge of all of Egypt when a great famine was coming, which was very important because his family itself was suffering from the famine, and the only place on the known world at that time that had food was 
Egypt because the Pharaoh had been given these dreams and warning him, and Joseph had been put in charge and had been collecting and saving grain ahead of time. So when his family and brothers show up to Egypt and realize that Joseph is in charge, the brother they sold into slavery, you can imagine how fearful they would have been. But Joseph recognizes that the trials that he went through were necessary to put him in the place where he could save many lives. This was how God had worked on his heart. Or Moses. You know, Moses was a Hebrew child born during a time when the Pharaoh had said, throw all the male children, Hebrew children, into the, into the Nile. But Moses was beautiful in form, as it tells us, so his mother put him in a, uh, a little a little boat or made of reeds that she'd put in and put him in the, the Nile and Pharaoh's daughter finds him and raises him and when he realizes he's a Hebrew he kills one of the slavers over his people and when he realizes that's been discovered he runs away into the wilderness and if you've seen these pictures out in the foyer of the wilderness you realize how barren that place is and he spent 40 years there Many people don't realize that. Forty years before the burning bush came and he got the call from God to go back to Egypt. God put him in a place where his heart was being beat down for 40 years in preparation that he would know every nook and cranny of that wilderness. For when he led God's people out, he was ready. David, before David became king, what was he put through? Well, the previous king wanted to kill him. Chased him all over the countryside. Chased him into the, the nation of the Philistines to the point where at one time he's acting like a madman, letting the spit run down his beard just so he's not killed by the king who knows about who he is. David went through trial and trial to prepare his heart for what he would do. How does God prepare the soil to receive the seed? Well, he does it through trials. So there's an, un, there's an understanding of that. This is the work of God that he's doing in your life. So don't be discouraged when you face trials because it very well may be the means that God is using to wrestle your fingers away from the idols that you don't even know you're holding on to. So we have an expectation set by this parable. We have an understanding of how the heart and the soil is prepared. And lastly, lastly we need to understand what is the purpose of parables? What is our takeaway application for this? And as we look at that explained, beginning in verse 10, he says, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven." And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So this one somehow is key. He's talking about this strange thing from Isaiah chapter 6 is what he's quoting from. And by the way, when we think about the parables having a purpose, and we think about the, light, the likeness of the seed to the Word of God, that's not the first place that we see that in Scripture, by the way. We also see that in Isaiah and if you're familiar with Isaiah chapter 55, if you like turning to different places, in Isaiah 55, he says this, starting in verse 10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, 
giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So here's a very clear indication. The word of God never returns void. It always accomplishes exactly the purpose that God has sent out. So how do we reconcile that with what we're observing in this parable? I mean, it's easy to reconcile it with the, the last group that's bearing 30, 60, and 100 fold. And by the way, commentators explain, I'm not a farmer, so I didn't know this, but commentators explain that that is a supernatural yield to seed. You know, another evidence that God is doing something within the heart. So that's an easy to see. Okay, well, it, the purpose of the sowing of the seed clearly has the effect on at least 25% of the soil of the hearts of men. Now, I don't think those percentages are relevant, but you get the picture. But how do we explain the other 75%? What is the purpose of the seed that goes out that bears no fruit, that falls on the, the path that is hard, that falls on the rocky soil, that falls among the thorns? How do we explain that purpose? And that's where this cryptic thing that Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 6 becomes very helpful. Because that is a very cryptic, hard thing. What did he say? He says, um, for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Like, what on earth is he talking about? That seems so counter to his purposes. Well, let's go back and look where that quote comes from, Isaiah chapter 6. And I know you're familiar with at least one verse from Isaiah 6, because we say it every Sunday at the end of the service. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? That doesn't mean go yet, but <laughs> soon. But that's right. That's God asking, you know, saying in, to Isaiah, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, here I am and send me. And the very next thing he says, well, here's what I'm sending you to say. Here's what I'm sending you to do. And it's right after that, um, in verse 9 of Isaiah 6, he says, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, that is an odd commission that he's been given as a prophet. And why has Isaiah been given that, that commission? To blind the eyes of the people, to deafen them, to not allow them to understand. I mean, it seems so counter to what we would expect. Doesn't God want people to respond to the gospel? Well, in Isaiah's day, we have to consider what is, what is Isaiah's message? In Isaiah's message, Isaiah was a prophet who was giving an assessment of the nation of Israel at the time when he was a prophet. And the assessment of the nation of Israel was not good. This is a country that had been in favor with the Word of God. They'd been made God's people. They'd been brought together, given the temple, the sacrifices, everything, and yet their description was there are people who are close to me with their lips but far from me with their hearts. This is a people who don't get it. They've had the Word of God. They've had this privilege forever, and yet they don't obey. So Isaiah's message is a warning and a judgment upon the people because they have not listened. That's the purpose. And when Jesus is quoting this, when He's suddenly shifting to teaching in parables, 
he is doing what Isaiah was doing. He is, he is pronouncing judgment upon the people. It's a warning slash judgment, which again brings us back to the thing he begins and ends this with, listen, he who has ears to ear, let him hear. Because if you don't listen and you don't hear, what you have already received, God is going to snatch back away from you. That's the, that's the, the essence of the parable in Matthew chapter 25 as well, the parable of the tenants. Oh, I got it in here. Let me look in here. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The point is clear. If you are one who has developed the habit of listening without hearing, which means I'm listening to Jesus, but I'm not trusting Him and I'm not obeying what He says, that eventually you will lose the ability to even understand it. That's what He's saying. There is a window. Pretty soon all you will be hearing is wah, 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 wah. You know, sometimes kids learn to hear that from their parents. They just learn to tune them out. And it's become such a habit, their hearts have grown so cold that they are unable to hear it. That is, the, that is the warning that the parables are giving to us. Have you heard God today? Today, if you hear His voice, what does He say? Do not harden your heart as they did in the rebellion. So psalmist writes in Psalm 95, the Hebrew writers picked up in Hebrews chapter 3. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart, but obey. Obey. To listen and hear is to obey. Lest you put yourself in a bad, risk getting it taken away altogether. You know, in the passage immediately before this, in Mark, the end of Mark chapter 3. We, we kind of skipped this. We ended before it last week. We kind of hinted at it, but we didn't actually read it. He says something quite interesting. If you look back at Mark chapter 3, verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. So we already knew that was happening because we talked about how they had come thinking he was out of his mind wanting to rescue him from this situation he's gotten himself into where the crowds are threatening to crush him. So here they are, they're outside where he's teaching. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus says something quite interesting. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? Who's my family? And looking around, looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mothers and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sisters and mother. Listening to the Word of God is a privilege that God has given everyone who is here this morning. 
He has orchestrated things in your life to put you in a place where you can be exposed to this word. The question is, did you hear it? And are you listening? And how do you know if you're listening? Because you are obeying what He says. Who is the one who loves Jesus? He asks in John 6, or John, Gospel of John, the one who obeys, the one who listens and puts His words into practice. That's what it means to trust Jesus. If you trust Him and He tells you something, then you do it. And the good news is, that doesn't earn your way into heaven, by the way. It simply reveals the nature of the work that God has already been doing in your heart to receive the Word of God. How do you know if He's been at work in your heart? It's bearing fruit. Now, I say that to remind you that that fruit doesn't get you into heaven. That fruit is evidence that God has done a work already in your life to bring you close. But it is possible, it is possible that you can harden your own heart. And that's what the warnings throughout the New Testament are all about. Don't harden your heart. Don't fall to those thorns that want to drown out and squeeze out the life out of the fruit that you would otherwise bear. But instead, trust me and obey. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for parables that reveal such important and sometimes hard truths. Lord, we are grateful that You came to sow the seed. We are grateful that Your Holy Spirit is at work cultivating our hearts to be receptive soil. We are grateful that You do all that is necessary to cause that, that grain to grow. Lord, help us to respond by listening, by listening well, and by putting into practice the things You tell us to put into practice. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.